He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, August 26, 2023. I have an embarrassment of riches for this show. And then I have another show coming up Monday morning, Craig's Colorado Corner with Susan Stubson and her legislative leader, Tim Stubson, husband. That's my panel They are from Wyoming, staunch Republicans, and friends of Liz Cheney after competing with her. Anyway, it's a long story. It's a good one. You've heard Susan before on my show. Now these uh, smart lawyers get together with me again. She writes for the New York Times. That's how smart she is. Kyle Clark is really smart. He is from New York. He was featured on our episode 100, and boy, did he have a nice start to the show when Donald Trump got arrested in Fulton County because he had the Colorado connections, the kind of things that I take about 20 hours to cover. He covers in, I don't know, 90 seconds. He does it well. He names names, plays just the right sound. It's short form. It's visual. He's a master at his craft, and his craft is telling the truth. And did he land hard blows on places I used to work? 630K house, 710K US. I've done that before. Land hard blows on those guys because they've sold out to MAGA and bullshit. And I've called out these same people, and you know you have hurt them bad when they cannot even respond. Now, with me, they want to pretend that I've disappeared. I don't write at the Colorado Sun. I don't have this popular podcast, but I do. And I have Craig's Colorado Corner, too. We don't do propaganda. But the thing is, they can't ignore Kyle Clark, but they do. Nine News is the news leader around Colorado. And they called out Peter Boyles for hosting Joe Altman. They called out Dan Kaplis for hosting Jenna Ellis, not just hosting them, but at the critical time, the critical time when our country was in trouble because Donald Trump was starting his big lie and he starts it in Colorado, right there with these guys, and they won't talk about it. And Kyle Clark calls them out. And I waited late on a Friday night to make sure I was fair to Kaplis. Because maybe he would respond. Maybe there is some defense. But he won't even mention Jenna Ellis. It's ridiculous. It really is. And he has people fill in for him, Christy Burton Brown, who says it's a political persecution, echoing Dan Kaplis, really echoing George Brockler, as I played last week. I've got more George Brockler sound. You can listen to him. 6 a.m. Monday morning, running for Douglas County DA. Yes, I've got this sound illustrating that he's going to run, 
That's the job he's moving on to. Believe me, this 710 thing, not working out well. Stepping tubs, now he's gone. So these guys aren't going to talk about their role in the big lie, but we do, we will, and that's what's going on. Gosh, I'm shortchanging our guests because they are fantastic. Bruce Hellerstein is a legend. He was part of the Denver Baseball Commission. He's my mishpacha. He's a cousin somehow. We talk about that. He went to George Washington. Back in the day, he could play baseball, and he achieved great things. He's got a museum, the Denver Ballpark Museum, the National Ballpark Museum on Blake Street. He's my first guest, and we get to share the honor of being inducted into the George Washington High School Hall of Fame. And that's one of the greatest honors of my life, and to share it with Bruce Hellerstein and Debbie Stark and Tom Asbury, who's going to be a guest next week. I'm going to try to get Debbie on, too. Holy cow, these stories, my high school. But then there are my professional colleagues like Tom Overton, he was a great football player in college. Now he's a fantastic lawyer and a pillar of our legal community. I used to bang heads with him in the Lawyers League. And then I watched him work and be successful over the decades. And he's a pillar of the bar. He serves on ethical committees for the federal courts, too. And he's watched what's going on. And he wants something better. He likes my show. He likes... Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, he returns for the first time in a while, and he's playing cleanup in between. Dave Gunders, our troubadour, he's magnificent with World Gone Crazy, and we talk about the crazy events of the week. But first, I want to salute Kyle Clark and tell you on the back end, I have some more sound of Dan Kaplis and George Brockler, sad sound of Dan Kaplis. Using the word Gestapo, 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 I just said it three times because he said it three times. And he said it's justified because of a mugshot, a mugshot of Donald Trump in what he's calling a political persecution, getting people worked up. And to give him a fair chance, I just listened to his podcast as fast as I could and it starts off with the Centennial Gun Club ad. Get your guns, and who's stirring up the violence? And he somehow says, oh, it's Fannie Willis and the Dems. They're trying to stir up violence, putting a target on Donald Trump, who really has put his mugshot on mugs and selling it for, what, 30 40 bucks? Official merchandise? He went back on Twitter today, bragging about that mugshot that Dan Kepler says justifies calling Bonnie Willis Gestapo? Come on, man, you've lost me. You know, that's Bob Enyard world. And it's a shame it's on a legacy station like K-How. And thank God for Kyle Clark calling it out. Call it out, Kyle. Call out KNUS. Holy cow, the platform... Peter Boyles gave to Joe Altman to spread the big lie. Listen to what I'm talking about. Here's Kyle Clark the other night, right after Donald Trump 
turned himself in and took that horrible mugshot. They processed him in record time, let him lie about his height and his weight, and yet Dan Kaplis backs him. In fact, on Friday, I tuned in long enough to be disgusted to hear him say it was the greatest mugshot ever taken. Well, you know, maybe I should have more Rachmanis. That's compassion in Yiddish. Because Dan Kaplis seems to be part of this cult. The greatest mugshot ever. I thought it was horrific. It looked like Steve Harrington staring at me when I convicted him of first-degree murder for killing Tom Holler. I was on the prosecution side of things. I can smell a criminal. Donald Trump's a criminal. Kyle Clark has things figured out, and he's not afraid to explain where Trump's big life flowed right out of conservative mouths. I hate that word, conservative. What the hell does that mean? Just bullshit mouths out of Colorado, many of whom worked in radio. And he calls out Randy Corcoran, too, because who we, as we've shown in our last few episodes, he was in on it early with Altman. Give a listen to Kyle Clark. I just saw it. President Trump has turned himself in to face charges for trying to overthrow the 2020 election that he lost. Our next big thing tonight is how some Colorado conservative activists, talk show hosts and attorneys fueled the conspiracy theory that was really at the heart of Trump's stolen election lie. Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. Conservative voices in Colorado then helped stoke a conspiracy theory that Denver-based Dominion voting systems had rigged the election. They helped build a plan to overturn the election results. Is this a, a massive case of fraud, Joe? Um, I think this is a conspiracy to okay. commit fraud against the American people. Okay. Joe Oltman, a conservative activist from Douglas County, repeatedly went on KNUS radio to claim that he overheard an Antifa conference call with Dominion. This is a massive, massive, massive putting your finger on the scales of the election. Colorado's Republican National Committee man, another KNUS host, Randy Corporate, said he connected Oltman to the Trump team, including now indicted attorney Sidney Powell. You've heard a lot about Sidney Powell. And uh, she is great. I've been talking with her via text this week, and she's so busy. Um, shared some of this Dominion information with her. Within days, the Trump legal team, including Rudy Giuliani, were attacking Dominion and attacking one Colorado-based employee, Eric Coomer, by name. The Coomer character, who is close to Antifa, took off all of his social media. Ha-ha, but we kept it. We've got it. The man is a vicious, vicious man. He wrote horrible things about the president. He is completely, he is completely biased, he's completely warped, and he specifically says that they're going to fix this election. Colorado Christian University's Jenna Ellis was part of that legal team. On K-House Dan Kaplan's show, Ellis suggested, without any evidence, that Dominion was also rigging elections in Colorado. Dan, I'll kind of break some news here with you that uh, we are seeing how Dominion may have swung uh, some of the state and local races in Colorado as well. That evidence never materialized. Yet Trump stoked his supporters' anger at Dominion. Prosecutors say Ellis and CU Boulder visiting scholar John Eastman put together the ultimately unsuccessful legal strategy to overturn the election. And the Coloradan who first accused Dominion of election rigging? He eventually got a daily talk show of his own. 
where he's repeatedly suggested executing his political enemies. And I want to send the media to the gallows, the mainstream media to the gallows, radical leftists to the gallows, traitors to our nation to the gallows. It wasn't that something, so here's the order. First of all, thank you, Kyle Clark, and shame on you guys for not even acknowledging what you did. You've got the sound. Play it at KHOW. Play it at KNUS. They won't. That's a confession, but they're still spewing that propaganda. I've got more evidence at the back end of this show with a damning soundbite from Kaplis and another one from Brockler. And bear in mind that Kaplis pays for Boyles to be on the air. Kaplis pays for Brockler to be on the air. Mike Lindell pays for Brockler to be on the air. And Brockler needs a job until he wants to be Douglas County DA. And when you hear the sound at the end of the show, you have to ask yourself, should he be? This next interview with Bruce Hellerstein is really fantastic. He is an important part of our community, and he is a delightful storyteller. Enjoy him, followed by our troubadour Dave Gunders with his really great song, World Gone Crazy, and then Craig's Lawyer's Lounge opens up to welcome our friend Tom Overton. You can choose the topics, skip ahead, we give you all the breaks, But I'm telling you, you're going to love Bruce Hellerstein. I'm telling you, you're going to find out that Tom Overton is a great lawyer and he may be right for your needs. If you need a lawyer in a business divorce, you cannot do better than Tom Overton. If you need a lawyer in a professional dispute, Tom Overton. He just gets the job done. He's a trial lawyer. And that's what we talk about. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And then at the back end, I put out the sound bites of Dan Kaplis and George Brockler for your consideration. Dan Kaplis talking about Gestapo, George Brockler talking about his desire to be the Douglas County DA so he can seek vengeance for the community on a punk who did a terrible thing, apparently, according to the paper and what George read. He really wants to get out of radio and back to being a prosecutor, and uh, he may have that opportunity. But let's talk about it. Thanks for listening. After this break, Bruce Hellerstein. After that, our troubadour. After that, Tom Overton. After that, more sound bites. It's an embarrassment of riches. Thanks for listening. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too 
decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig. 303-734-7156. 303-734-7156. I am Craig. Craig Silverman. A voice for victims. Gosh, doing a podcast is fun. So many different guests. Bruce Hellerstein may be my relative. We are trying to figure that out. But I do know he's a big shot in Denver, Colorado. And thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, Craig, my pleasure. It's a real uh, honor. Thank you very much. Well, to me, one of the biggest events in my lifetime in Denver, Colorado, was when the Colorado Rockies located here. We got Major League Baseball. As a native, it was huge. Now, what about you, Bruce? Are you a native? Uh, Very much so. I think I'm either a third or fourth generation native. And I will tell you, it had to be the happiest day of my life. It's something that I had wanted every waking moment growing up and uh, then some. And I think it was about 40 years old when we got it. And it um, just, uh, you know, I told people that to be a major league city, you have to have major league baseball. It's not enough just to say you're in the NFL. Major league baseball prints uh, that on your uh, label when you uh, achieve that. And I truly, truly believe that. Now, what year did you graduate from high school? Uh, in 1967. All right. So that's seven years ahead of me, which gives you a different perspective, which I appreciate on so many things. Tell everybody what part of town you grew up in and your first memories of sports in Denver, Colorado. Well, I grew up uh, in what's known as the Hilltop area, not too far from Cherry Creek and uh, not too far, I guess, from George Washington High School, my alma mater. I did not have the typical family or friends that influenced uh, any interest in sports. It was pretty much uh, self-directed uh, on my part. In fact, I love telling the story how I had my calling for baseball uh, back in second grade. Like so many elementaries, you do show and tell. And a girl, I re- remember her name, Carol, said, I went to Bear Stadium to see a Denver base- Bears baseball game. And I couldn't have run home any faster and forced my parents to take me out there. It was love at first sight. It was really a calling, Craig. I mean, it's hard to explain, but uh, it was like predestined. 
that it 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 probably took about as long as we just talked right now for me to get that calling. It's it's pretty amazing looking back. Now I love baseball too, and I heard about when the Denver Bears were the affiliate of the New York Yankees, Bobby Richardson, and uh, who their their coach. Uh, Oh, Ralph Houck. Tell tell everybody all the famous Yankees who came through Denver. I don't really know because my older brother knew a little bit. My dad told me about it. I read about it, but I'm a little too young. Tell everybody how cool that was when the Bears were the Yankees affiliate and the Yankees were winning all the time. Absolutely. So to be exact, it was 1955. And just a little background information, what created us getting the Bears as AAA, prior to 55, we were single A in the old Western League. So when the Philadelphia A's moved to Kansas City in 55, it freed up Kansas City as being the AAA affiliate of the Yankees, um, and uh, actually Kansas City uh, Blues to be exact. So that brought us Major League Baseball in 55. And kind of from the process of elimination, we basically saw tons of the Yankees, with the exception, of course, of the big names, Mickey and Roger and Whitey. But there were still plenty, plenty more. In fact, on, in 1955, we had Don Larson, who went on to fame the very next year for the only perfect game in the World Series. Ralph Terry, a pitcher, the one of the only pitchers, maybe the only one to pitch two seventh game World Series games and uh you know Bobby Richardson and Tony Kubak, the uh Keystone Combo, uh that's where they developed their friendship. Uh that's long but lifelong lasting. Marv Throneberry, who unfortunately became known as Marvelous Marv with the Mets, he was maybe our best player. He was phenomenal. He I think he had 42 home runs one year. I had heard that he hit balls at uh, almost at the light tower in right center field. And it's really a shame because he was a phenomenal player. And when the Mets were the laughing stock of baseball, that first year of expansion, and he was on that team, he, he had a few things, I think, fielding stuff. Anyway, just to uh, digress for a minute, the running joke I had heard is that Casey Stengel, the manager of the Mets, was arguing with the umpire because the umpire said that when Marv was on first base, he missed second base when he was rounding to get to third. And uh, uh, Casey said he also missed first base. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. But, but isn't that what wet the appetite? I mean, we saw Kubek and Richardson one year with the Bears. I didn't, but my family did. And then they're playing for the World Series, and they came through Denver. Billy Martin ended up coming through the Bears, too. I remember all that. And yet, we were kind of a cow town. We had the upstart Broncos, which was cool as hell. I've talked about basketball history a lot, but I loved baseball as a boy. Really, it was ingrained in me by my dad, who I asked him on his deathbed, who was your favorite baseball player? Really? How did he respond? Stan Musial. And you know why? It. Because when he was growing up, St. Louis was the closest city to Denver. And right. he he Stan the man was the best player on the closest team to Denver. So I thought that was cool. 
That is really cool. One of the things, too, I might add, because it's it's just a phenomenal record, and it's uh, not well known uh, in many circles. Stan played 22 years, all at the Cardinals, and at the end of the day, he had exactly the same number of hits on the road as on home games. Wow. And when you think about that, that, that is beyond mind-boggling, especially with all the train travel these guys had to do and everything. The name of the game is consistency, and I think he, he, he proved it right there. You're boggling my mind with your baseball trivia. I'm pretty good at it, but I can see you are, like Gary Kasparov, super smart when it comes to this stuff. You know, it's interesting. I mean, a lot depends, and I mess around with trivia with some of my friends, nothing serious, but I find that growing up in the 50s, the 60s, I mean, I really remember that stuff. In the 70s and 80s, it wasn't quite the same. And of course, it was uh, re-energized in the mid-80s with us trying to get baseball, Major League Baseball here. And of course, when we got the Rockies in 93. But And I've tried really, really hard to concentrate on way before our generations. And it's very, very fascinating how great these old ball players were. They, they were phenomenal. And they were strongest can be, too. These were, these were tough, tough men. They were country strong, not 24-7 strong. And um, they, uh, let me just put it, they, they weren't the wimps that we see today. They, they played because they knew if they weren't out there, someone's going to take their job. All right, let's so. get more local, hyper-local. Uh-huh. George Washington High School, right there at the intersection of Leedsdale and Monaco. Maybe you want to say Alameda and Monaco. It doesn't matter what you say. But they had a baseball team. And speaking of great baseball players, your legend, Bruce Hellerstein, lives on. Tell everybody and don't be modest about your own baseball career. Well, you know, in all frankness, it wasn't anything near where I was hoping. It was extremely frustrating in a lot of ways. I didn't achieve baseball like I had dreamed about. But I will say this, that uh, I learned a lot about baseball and watching the great coaches, you know, in the Denver Prep League, the great players. I grew up a couple years younger than Danny Ruth, who I thought was going to be the next Mickey Mantle. Uh, I used to shag balls with him out at the park for him and uh, supposedly hit the uh, uh, one of the windows in the swimming pool in right center field at the field. And Fred Burns learned a lot about pitching and just how great he was. And it was it was a, just a, an incredible experience that uh, I kept learning about the game. I will say this, that I remember the great moments. And one of the great moments is getting that first hit off an All-State pitcher, also Kennedy High School in their, very, their inaugural year in baseball sports. I pitched against them. So those memories were very uh, loud for me. And I know that uh, Coach Carlson was sophomore baseball, and he really, really had my back. I remember the first game he put me into was against South. It was the last inning, bases loaded, uh, nobody out, and I struck out the side. So, you know, there's a lot of – I knew that I could pitch with anybody and play with anybody. 
And uh, it was just a circumstance where I don't want to sound like I was a victim, but it did turn out like uh, I thought it should have. Well, I think you had the same coach I did. Paul Bond was head baseball coach. Paul Bond, who ran Crestmore Club, which was restricted as regards Jewish members. Am I right? You are 100% right. And what you're saying is rings very true to me. Yeah, true to me too. But myself, my best friend, Mark Bine, we still pitched because we were that good. Brad Bernstein the year before, we got to play because I guess you paved the way and you forced your way on the field too, right? You just didn't get all the opportunities you should have. Yeah, I mean, it was something that, and unfortunately, uh, I really loved playing basketball in uh, junior high school. At Hill Junior High, I never had so much fun. And go on sophomore basketball. I, I literally didn't even touch the ball. I mean, it was... Because because Paul Bond was the coach? Yeah, he was the coach. Now, I can only tell you the consequence of this. I'm not trying to throw dirt on him, but I can tell you this, that I love basketball as much as anybody could. And going into sophomore basketball, never touched the ball, never got to do anything. After that 10th grade, I never picked up a basketball the rest of my life. Son of he a took bitch. the love of the sport out of my life. And to me, a teacher or coach that kills the love of a game uh, is, um, I, I don't know how much more damage they can do. You know, I played baseball with his sons and they were nice guys. And oh, they were great they, guys. Yes. Bruce Vaughn was mm-hmm. a year behind me. Great, great guy. Absolutely. And let me tell you one of the luckiest breaks of my life because basketball was the sport I loved. And I did okay at baseball and golf, but really basketball was my shining thing because my sophomore season, thank God Paul Bond stopped being the sophomore coach and Bill P.A. became the coach and saw my potential. And then Weimer did too. What a break in life. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, one of the things I have found, Craig, and it applies, I think, especially in sports, but in all phases of life, having someone's back. And uh, I'll tell you, Coach Carlson had my back. And um, he just, you know, in software baseball, had a phenomenal year. And I think I only lost one game, pitched, you know, every week. And he put me in the line of fire with the bases loaded there. And you know what? That's when you thrive, when you've got uh, someone that has your back. And if you've got someone that doesn't want to see you out there, it makes it really tough. And tell me if I've got it right, because Coach Carlson is a blessed memory to me because he was an assistant coach to Bill Weimer on the basketball team. He also helped coach Browning in football, if I'm correct. And Yeah, and I think I'm correct on this, that Weimer, Browning, and Carlson all went to DU at the same time. So these guys and the coach at East High School, they go way back in time. And you were telling me when we talked earlier about how GW rated the best of East when it opened? Uh-huh. It, it was, yeah, they totally rated East High School, not only with athletes and students, but with coaches and teachers. I mean, it was amazing. Well, listen, what did GW win the state title in basketball the very first year? Yes, my guest next week, Tom Asbury. I think that tells a lot right there. Yes, when GW started in 1960, they came out hot. 
winning championships in all sorts of sports. And there you were later in the 60s. Let me ask you about that, because I was in kindergarten for a lot of this stuff you're talking about. What was it like growing up in the 60s? Well, it was, uh, to tell you the truth, uh, in the latter part of high school, and certainly my first few years in college, in my personal life was all about Vietnam. It was really, really a scary period. And with all the uh, rebellion and things going on with anti-war or whatever it might be, it was a understatement. It was a very, very difficult time to grow up. But with that being said, in 1969, it was the miracle of the Mets and the miracle of the Jets. We have a man on the moon. So it was very turbulent times. I'm not sure I'd want to relive what those years were like. But I will say this, that uh, uppermost on my mind was Vietnam. And baseball, because aside apart from GW, where maybe the coaches weren't giving you a fair chance, there was always summer baseball, old-timers, Colt League, Pony League, or diggers, and then you go on to Legion B or maybe Legion A, and then there are upper levels I never achieved, but did you play summer ball? Oh, all every year, every year, just like you did. And uh, what I did is uh, played in Pony League. I don't know if you remember uh, Coach Jim Lacefield and Jim uh, Jr. knew him all the way from eight or 10 years old on. Great, great guy, great, great athlete. And uh, Coach Lacefield was the best baseball coach I ever had. And um, so the Pony Leagues was a huge thing. And then instead of playing Colt League, I played Legion B. We didn't have that good a time, but it was great experience. And then here again, Paul Vons comes up. And here I'm just having the time of my life playing ball. And we're playing. I joined the, let's see, what was it, Art Mountain uh, was the Legion A team for GW. I was on that for two or three years. Never saw a game. I mean, it was, I'll tell you, Craig, it was awful. I mean, you, you can't do that. I mean, maybe, you know, on professional level, you can uh, have a guy sit on the bench all the time. You can't do that when you're growing up. You can't do that to Why, a What do you mean never saw a game? Vaughn never came and watched you or made sure you never you played? Never in the game. You he would never put in you in, in right. Just like in sophomore basketball. and. Okay, that's 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 a killer. But my fortitude was I wasn't going to quit. I was going to go to every practice. I was going to get better and better at it. And I love the game too much to just walk away and say to heck with it. But uh, and I did in basketball that I did do, which obviously I well, did. You know, we're putting a hard rap on this guy. He's probably been dead a long time. And I did end up playing for Coach Vaughn, but. These stories are around. Are there other Jewish athletes of that era at GW who you think got screwed? Oh, my best friend, Kerry Canaster. I mean, Kerry was one of the best ball players. He went on to play fast pitch softball for the next 25 years. He had a great team when you were on it. I believe it was in the Colt League. Uh, in other years, Kerry played in the Colt League with a bunch of all-state players. No, if there's anybody that was total victim of that process. It was Kerry. He got no chance. Jeez, and his parents sat right next to mine at the Beth Joseph congregation. What a great family. What a great guy Kerry Canaster is. Uh, we're all going to get together. And it's great to reconnect 
to you, and we'll get to how that's happened. Although my grandma Goldie, her main name was Hellerstein, and I'm sure we are related somehow, but it's not like we've hang out because you're so much older than me, right, Bruce? Anyway, well, yeah. I wish I could say I was older and wiser, but I don't think that's the case. You you have accomplished so much, Craig, and you're a household name in the city and I don't I don't have a I don't have a museum like you. And I don't have a legendary practice as a professional accountant. Tell everybody about what you do for a living and how you ended up with the museum. Well, it's actually kind of connected. So I've been a CPA uh, my entire professional life, all in public accounting, no private industry except for a little bit in college, and working at national firms, medium firms, having my own firms along the way, all in this area in Denver. And uh, I started out as an auditor, which I really enjoyed, but there's only, there was only so much future as an auditor. And... I concentrated on tax work and my mentor and one of my closest friends ever was Manny Levine. He was with Stone Gray, one of the most uh, well-known and outstanding CPA firms locally here. And so I worked with Manny for close to 40 years with his firm. And uh, after that uh, firm reorganized, the national firm, I started my own firm. But the thing that I really, really love uh, in my work, and there's very few CPAs that do it, is a state gift and trust. And it's an area that I just have always pursued. It really led to me to form a 501c3 for my museum because that's a uh, can be a vital part of estate planning. So they're all kind of connected along the way. Well, tell everybody about your museum, or do you want to, you know, connect the dots through your major role in bringing the Rockies to our beautiful city of Denver. Well, I appreciate your saying that. I was on the Denver Baseball Commission. I was on the design committee for Coors Field. I'll tell you, I never had so much fun in my life. I counted the seconds to every single meeting. I made friends that were long-lived, great, great, great people. And um, I just... Uh, How did you get that gig? Well, it, it's everything has uh, sometimes a funny story to it. So anyway, I was reading the paper one day, and I see this, this small little teeny article that says, Denver Baseball Commission has been formed. So I gave them a call, and it wasn't, I didn't even think of being on the commission. I knew very little about it. I knew that it was formed by Mayor Pena, and he should get incredible credit for having Major League Baseball here. He planted the seed. But anyway, I said to them, I said, I'm a CPA. I think you have to do some tax filings because I knew they were tax exempt. And I said, I'll work gratis. I'll be more than happy to help you. Well, I was a savior that even though they had to file anything. And then once they saw I was kind of baseball crazy, they said, you need to be on this commission. So it was um, just a great, great thing. And same thing with the design committee for Coors Field. Uh, everybody there knew I was baseball crazy on, on stadiums as well. I met with HOK, the architects, which is now Poplis. They do almost all the, the new stadiums, uh, baseball and otherwise. And it was a fa fascinating experience. And there's one uh, thing that happened there that you might get a kick out. So one day the HOK uh, represented said, so, well, we're trying to figure out what to put at 20th and Blake Street at the corner there, the home plate entrance. 
And I went crazy. I was waving my hands like a crazy person. And he says, so, uh, Mr. Hellerstein, what is wrong with you? I said, you've got to make it look like Ebbets Field from the Vulcan Dodgers. And their response was, and these guys are really young. They said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. They said, send us some pictures. Well, I must have sent them 10,000 pictures. So that's what we have at 20th and Blake is a takeoff of old Ebbets Field. And, of course, that was even taken further by the New York Mets with City Field. But uh, anyway, that was a very exciting. The whole thing was just terribly exciting. And I'll tell you, it was so well planned. The parking, the logistics, everybody on that committee deserves great, great credit because a lot of disasters happen when, you know, there's problems, especially with transportation. So, uh, but it's it's interesting, too, that something I didn't really think about they spent a lot of time talking about landscaping and things that never entered my mind and just how certain points in urban architecture about anchoring a street, like when you look down Wine Coop or you look down uh, uh, 21st Street, it's all anchored by the ballpark. So, And, of course, on 17th Street, anchored by uh, Union Station. So I got a real feel on how urban uh, planning sometimes goes. Oh, but- you know, that brings back so many great memories because, as I recall, it came down to three different sites, and I was excited when 20th and Blake was selected because my dad and brother worked at uh, 16th and Blake, J.P. Plaza, Jordan Perlmutter Plaza. You probably knew Jordy. Anyway, and uh, it's walking distance. We didn't have to pay for that parking, and I'm working at the other end of downtown as a prosecutor. And when I heard about the groundbreaking for Coors Field, I bet you were there. I took the shuttle down. I walked. I saw you guys with the shovels. And they gave out free peanuts. Do you remember that? I still, I still have a bag oh, of Oh, I took two. I took two. And I put them in my drawer. I thought, this well, I'm going to have two kids. This will finance their college. You still got yours. You know what happened to mine? What's that? I'm doing a closing argument. And Uh, my beautiful wife now, she was my fiance. And back then, there wasn't great security. And we were going, waiting for the jury till about 6 o'clock. And she was waiting for me when I got back and eating peanuts that she found in my drawer. Are you kidding me? No. Well, that's a sad story, but funny as hell. That's really amazing. Yeah. That is really a great story. It's like the, the the mom that throws your baseball cards away. That That is really... That might not be as valuable, but you still got yours, right? It was stamped groundbreaking, Coors Field, right? They showed us where our home plate would be, and we had to visualize it. And I didn't know that it's my cousin, Bruce Hellerstein, who did all of this. Well, I can tell you this, that... It took an incredible, incredible team. Uh, guys like Steve Kadich and Don uh, Hinchy and Roger, uh, oh, Roger Kenny, I'm sorry. These people were the best. They really, really were great, great people. And you know what? They gave me just uh, such a great welcoming and made me feel part of the whole group. Like I said, Craig, it didn't get any better than that. It really did it. And boy, we just each week, or I should say once a month, at least when we met, we just walk out of there just feeling more and more positive, like we're going to get it. And it was um, pretty amazing. It, it 
it was, um, and of course, went down to the wire with who's going to be our owner and if the stadium vote was going to pass and you know, just a lot of things. But I would say that the group we had here in Denver couldn't be any better. Are you giving me shivers with your course field? I'm sad about what's going on now. My paper, The Colorado Sun, is documenting it. But back in the day, he's 24 now. But he, when he was 13, my son, Ben, great baseball player, he had his bar mitzvah reception at Coors Field. Are I you love kidding? that place. How great is that? You made it possible. Now, what's your favorite all-time Rocky moment at Coors Field? Oh, without a doubt, that first first game in history uh, at Mile High Stadium, oh. of course. And of course, that's where I grew up and fell in love with the game. It, it was all it always stadium to me. It was freezing. There I was huddled with my dad and my brother. Fourteenth inning, Dante. Dante. Yeah, so. But this was at. No, you're the, talking Mile High, right? Right. You're and talking Eric Young. I was working that day. I had to do a docket. And I think my dad and my dad got two tickets, and I didn't get to go to that game. <laughs> it's funny how those things work out, but that is without a doubt. I, I'll tell you, I was in tears that day. I mean, I dreamed of this day my whole life, and I was like I said, how I fell in love with the game. It's almost the moment when I was seven, eight years old. I never spent a day not thinking about baseball, and just. Obviously, Major League was the the absolute goal, and it was. I just had to keep pinching myself when it all happened. It I was, know, but it had to be a pinch me. Come on, Dante, the Coors Field opener. I'm in that picture. I bet you have it on your wall too. The first night at Coors Field that you designed the mimic Emmett's Field, and there we were, and it was the Mets, right? It was. Well, the very first game, yeah, was at Shea Stadium. That was no, a I game. know. You know where I watched that? Because I was working that day in the Diamond Cabaret, the only place that had the game on during the day, right? So, One of the things on loan in the museum, it's been like for 25 years from one of my uh, real good close uh, collector friends. It's the bat that Andre Galarraga got in our first game, first hit in the mm-hmm. history of the Rockies, and he inscribed it. And uh, it's been sitting here for 25 years. Okay, he's my all-time favorite Rocky. Who's yours? Yeah, nicer guy. And I'll tell you, an incredible ball player. Is he your favorite too? Oh, the ball players? Yes. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's funny. You know, I didn't get attached to the Rocky players like I did with some of the guys I grew up with. I mean, it was always Mickey Mantle or Sandy Koufax. And I guess a lot just depends on one's age and everything, because the way the game was played back in the 50s, and quite frankly, I mean, in a lot of ways, it might sound strange, when I saw the Bears, and I didn't miss a beat back in the 50s and the 60s, in a lot of ways, it was better baseball back then. These guys were really, really good ball players. They honed their skills. They knew how to play the game. And I think sometimes these guys today, even back then, kind of cut some corners on learning to be a complete ball player. And remember Joe DiMaggio said that um, they asked him, why does he uh, take so much outfield practice? He says, I work on my weaknesses. And uh, I just wonder how many of these players today could say that. Who's your favorite player of all time? Oh, of all time? Oh, that's the easiest question you could ask him, Babe Ruth. And I'll tell you, Craig, doing this museum, 
Tell everybody yeah. about your museum. We've been dancing around it, but where is it? What is it? So it's at 1940 Blake Street. Uh, it's uh, right across Caddy Corner from Home Plate Entrance at Coors Field. It's up until oh, 25 years ago. I started it way back in the 80s. It was my personal collection. And then around, I think it was 1999, I formed a 501c3 and I donated my entire collection and anything I collected subsequent to that to the museum. I own nothing in here and it's all belongs to the community. And that's, and I What, what is a, the name of the museum? What will people see when they go there? Yeah, it's National Ballpark Museum. It's the only ballpark in this country dedicated to the old ballparks and especially the old classic ballparks. There are 14 of them. Fenway and Wrigley are the only ones still standing. And I truly, truly believe, especially when you have the terrific guests that come into the museum, that the memories that these old ballparks had, not only for the fans, you know, two, three, four generations, but also the players that all played there. To go out there to Fenway Park and say, hello, uh, this is where Bay played, and he played at Wrigley, of course. That That's big. And to me, they're beyond just saying, oh, these are the classic ballparks. These are American treasures. And I rated them as high, if not higher, than the Empire State Building. And there was a study years ago, the number one tourist attraction in New England, with all their history, was Fenway Park. So it's uh, it's very, very powerful, and it connects a lot of people. It's a great feeling preserving these great, great uh, old ballparks. They they were really, really special. You are and, giving me chills. You really are, because I took my boys to Fenway Park, and I got thrilled by, you know, Sweet Caroline. I mean, it was unbelievable. And then Ben and I, I was at a summer conference, and there was a company, I'll give them a shout-out, Law Cash, and they uh -huh. were from New York. And they said, hey, you know, we have Yankees tickets. It was the last year of the old Yankee Stadium. I said, oh, boy. And I had great seats, and I took my son, Ben, and I went there. And back in the day, you knew my late brother, Bill. We went on a baseball trip sure. from Denver to Wrigley. God, did we make great time until we were right near the stadium and had parking problems. But we saw... Carlton pitch against Russell, and they both hit home runs against each other. I mean, it was amazing that we went on to Tiger Stadium, and we, we ended up at a Mets game back at the old Shea Stadium. So, God, you're turning me on with the same things. I bet you've been to every stadium in the major leagues. Is that right? We have, but unfortunately, a lot of, not all of them, were demolished in the early 70s. Uh, I don't know where my head was, but I missed so much of that going back and seeing. But I did the next best thing and went back to their site. But, you know, I didn't take my first plane trip until I was a junior in, in high school. And actually, I went to Candlestick Park at the time. Yeah, I mean, growing up, taking uh, plane trips was not not uh, as common as you would think. And uh, Was that your first uh, baseball game at Candlestick Park? No, the first one I went to... Majorly, yeah. You ready for kind of a yes. humorous question? Please. It was in Kansas City in 1962. 
So my first cousin was getting married over the weekend and it was in Kansas City. So we took a road trip, my family back there. And believe me, we were going back there to see a wedding, not to go to ball games. So anyway, the day after the wedding on Sunday, I don't know how I did it, but I convinced my dad and brother that we need to go out and see Kansas City play at the old municipal stadium, which is literally the first major major league game I ever saw. And how I pulled away my dad and brother to go to that, I still don't know how I did it. Somehow, yeah. 13 years old. But I get pretty persuasive with baseball. So, but that was a great game. Harmon Kilbrew hit a home run and uh, it was a thrill. But I'll tell you the biggest thrill that ever had with going to a ballpark was old Crosley Field in Cincinnati. And just between you and me, that was my first love affair and I've never gotten over it. Uh, it was incredible. You met, you met a girl there? No, I'm just kidding. It was so crazy. fell for Crosley still, Field. I still dream about her. <laughs> Crosley? Did you name My your kids Crosley? Jeff. Right. Uh-huh. Holy cow. Hey, but I've never guessed that you fell in love with Crosley Field. I'll tell you, if you were there, you would understand. It was incredible. It was uh, actually the Johnny Bench's rookie season. And I'll tell you, nobody, nobody is anything like Johnny Bench as a catcher. And anybody who thinks differently, I'll take them on any day. It's too bad that he had a Paul Vaughn-like moment the other day at the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame. Did you hear about that? They were doing an induction, and Pete Rose was telling a story about some legendary uh, executive who gave him kind of a raw deal, or, or not that much money, and Johnny Bench said he was a Jew. No, Did you follow that? You know, you know what? It it was a horrible thing to say. Uh, Johnny certainly tried to cover himself as best he could, but it's very sad. I have met Johnny Bench. He's a neat guy. And I think it would just, you know, we all have all have our slips. We're not perfect. And uh, he just did it the wrong time. I met him too at some golf tournaments and I love Johnny Bench. But, you know, what was the guy, Gabe Paul, the executive? And he had, he was held back in his career by being Jewish because exactly. he could have been the commissioner of baseball. Am I right? You're absolutely right. You're totally on on that. Absolutely. So, All right. Here's the perfect segue now. Hall of Fame. I got the news probably just like you. And that's what caused us to speak. I don't think we ever had a detailed conversation ever or even met each other because we were different eras, ships passing in the night. And tell everybody what's gotten us together. Well, it's it's pretty amazing how fate and especially, you know, the uh you know, the age uh, that we're in, uh you and I as far as our uh uh senior status. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> We got almost to me the ultimate honor of being uh, inductees uh, to the uh, George Washington High School Hall, uh, Hall of Fame, and as I understand it, it's their athletic Hall of Fame, uh, as distinguished from their academic. That's the way I understand it. And uh, it sounds my brother Mark, who's quite a bit younger than I, he was in the inaugural class of inductees, and that was I think before they bifurcated the academic and non-academic. 
pandemic. Of course, my brother had an unbelievable career. Um, and so... What did he was, do? Give a shout out to him. Here. So Mark is a genius. He graduated number one in his class at CU. He got the highest score in the nation on the CPA exam. And he took St. Mary's Oil and Gas Company from a private company to one of the most successful uh, publicly traded companies in the whole oil business. I mean, that's insane. And um, But what did he do in sports? Mark played the basketball and baseball at George Washington as a sophomore, and he kind of just felt that that was uh, as far as he wanted All to right. take so it. So he's just a brainiac, and he probably made a fortune, but what the heck? Anyway... It's interesting that you interpret it that way. I'm not sure why I'm being inducted. And if somebody asks me, I think I'm saying basketball. So you're saying baseball? Oh, in in terms of my situation, without a doubt. And I think from what I understand, and especially going to, you know, Mark's induction, I think they're looking at it from a global standpoint what did you do after you graduated and the impact you've had on, because I mean, my God, I'm looking at 55 years ago when I graduated. And I think that's a big part of what's going on here, I presume. Um, and it's really neat that they're honoring people that have, uh, what they have done, uh, hopefully good things in their lifetime. Yeah, the memories come flooding back. Be by the time I got there, GW was well-established, even though it was only a little over 10 years old. And you guys set the way. Just tell everybody back in the day in the 60s what a gem GW was. Not that it isn't still great, but my gosh, it was so diverse. When I went there during desegregation, I always talk about my basketball team as a junior, four Jews, four whites, and four blacks. And it, it was just a special place in the biggest high school in Colorado, as I recall. Oh, without a doubt. And it was, yeah, I think there were, I don't know, maybe 3,000 students. And the thing, when I went to GW uh, from 65 through 67, uh, academically, it was like going to college. In fact, when I went to DU, it almost seemed much easier than high school. It was just a phenomenal school, incredible teachers, and and your peers were incredibly outstanding. I don't know how I could have gotten a better academic education in high school. It was like going to a private school. It really was. Except there were all those people, and it was diverse. And I only lived like two blocks away. So it was a dream come true. And I loved being a pitcher there, but I hated playing third base because whoever designed that field had me looking right in the sun. I already wore glasses. I was worried about that Tony Kubek bad hop into the Adams apple, right? Everybody remembers that in the World Series. And and if you can't see, it's hard to field. Don't you think that was a design flaw, GW? Yeah, and I don't know if you've been there recently, but they reconfigured. Yes. But I'll tell you, and I know that when I was on the design committee for Coors Field, you got to be so careful with the sun. In fact, quite frankly, they screwed up at Coors Field. The first baseman can't see the ball right. in the first early innings. And, you know, you got to uh, just get that sun looking outward and not um, getting those infielders and um, 
And the, the cardinal rule is don't let that batter have the sun in his. And here's a pro tip. That sun, it kind of comes up the same way day after day, year after year. And at the Denver courthouse that they designed, to, you know, where the Rocky Mountain News used to be, Colfax and Eladi, they got the sun pouring in on the security line where you're sweating like it's a sauna. Meanwhile, the prisoners at the jail are haven't made in the shade. I mean, it's like, what did we do to experience this? Why don't you shine the sun on the prisoner? Anyway, that's my beeping. But you're the guy who made Coors Field look the way it does. I didn't know that, Bruce Hellerstein. You are a fascinating man. And what an honor it is to be a fellow Hall of Fame inductee, the class of 2023 in your case, I'd say it's like Randy Gratishar. It's about effing time. Well, likewise, Craig, and you have had such an impact on the community and, uh, you know, the star athlete you were at GW and on and on and, you know, our family roots. And uh, someday we'll figure out how we're related, but I know we're related. So. I hope we're related, especially after hearing about your brother. That's pretty darn cool. I think we might be kissing cousins, but I'm not sure. All right. Well, let's get together soon. I can't thank you enough, and I'll see you at the induction ceremony at George. That sounds great. I can't thank you enough for having me on on that, Craig, and the very, very best to you and your family. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. Bye, Bruce. You bet. Bye, Craig. He's the best lawyer I know because he's my lawyer. He's Michael Bailey. I think you pioneered this mobile estate planning, and lots of lawyers are doing it now. And boy, are your clients happy and satisfied. It's convenient for the client. It certainly is fun to be able to go visit people where they are, whether it's at your house or at one of the offices, just to make it more convenient for you. And then it's more fun for me because I get to go out and about and meet people all over the place and help them out. What's the website, Michael? It is mobileestateplanning.com. What's the best phone number to call? 720-394-6887 is my direct line. Michael Bailey. That's our lawyer. Trish loves him. I do too. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Craig. Hey, everybody. For all of your legal needs, why not start with me? 734-7156-303-734-7156. I've been practicing law in Colorado for over 42 years years and i know a lot of people and if i can't do right by you i can steer you in the right direction my number 303-734-7156 ask for craig craig silverman a voice for victims a voice for people with legal difficulties i'm a little for it don't worry about it. Big, you're going to hurt yourself. Mind your own business. I, it hurts me. It pains me to see you like this, caught up in your own in your own headphones. It's a world gone crazy. It's a world gone mad. Well, that I, would be I, a good song, don't you think? I could help you with the headphone part of it. I know. I can't get my headphone cord pulled around enough, but I'm going to muddle through. All right. You can fix it after for me. All right.
You are a superstar. Last Saturday night, Gold Hill Music Festival, whatever it was, Gold Hill, it's um, everybody heard about it. They said, you went to the Gold Hill Inn? Is it still open? I said, it was rocking Saturday night with my troubadour, our troubadour, the Vipers and Dave Gunders. What a show you guys put on. Thanks, Craig. It was fun. They treated us well there, too. It's a good place to go. Gold Hill, good good food and uh, nice people. Outdoor venue. Yep. People dancing, especially the Zydeco. I got that song. It was rocking the whole town. I remember we once went to, uh, when I went to Guymon, Oklahoma. Have you ever been to Guymon? No, I don't think I've been to Oklahoma. Well, yes, I've been through it's Oklahoma. It's a small town yes. in the panhandle. Yeah, I've been through but they have a they have a college there called Panhandle State, okay? Okay. And it's most famous for Alan Ludden of Password fame went there. Okay. So it's little. Yeah. So little that when we came to town to play basketball, they had a sign on the bank saying, big game tonight. Right. CC versus Panhandle State. That's good. And I'm thinking, wow, there's a small town. So where did that term panhandler come from? That's that's what got me thinking about that. Because you have a pan and you want people to put money in it like they do oh, at okay. a lot of your gigs. Oh, thank you. Okay. And I thought maybe they were from Oklahoma or something. No, no, no. Because there's other pans. Anyway, I, I'm just making the point that when I went to Gold Hill, Colorado, where I've never been before, it's uh, up above Boulder, I'm sure... People listening maybe have been there, but maybe not. The last part is unpaved. But then there's a little town up there. Yeah. And the whole town was jumping because you guys were in town. Where did these people gather from? I don't know. I mean, I think I think Gold Hill Inn has its draw. People come up. And uh, it's just such a beautiful drive. You know, it's only a half an hour from Boulder. And uh, you're going up, what, like a couple, a good, like, 2,500 feet or so. I bet it's up at about about uh, 8,500 feet, something like that. Anyway, all of a sudden it's cool. It was in the 60s and it's just like a town that that time forgot. It's beautiful and, and, and relaxing. When did it get platted? Oh, so that would have been 1878. Um, uh, 1870. Okay, close. Very good. Because I walked around the town while you were entertaining. You really come alive when you do that. Yeah, yeah. In our show notes, we have links to a couple of videos of me walking the town, sneaking up on you guys. Yep. Tell everybody about your group again. Well, this is Papamo and the Vipers. Our le- our fearless leader, Papamo, plays B3 organ and accordion, and he's... Uh, He's, uh, he's not a Louisiana guy, but he's been somewhere along the line. He got bit by that music, and he's, he's uh, uh, a lot of fun and a good musician and a great guy to play with. And then there's, and then there's, um, there's Sammy Fuqua on, on bass, and there's James Denny Townsend, who plays drums, and then there's me. And when's your next gig? The next gig is in Littleton in a couple weeks, a place called The Alley. I think it's September... 19th something like that it's a little place but a cute little place in uh in downtown littleton you know my only complaint when i come and watch you guys not enough dave gunder's original music like zydeco 
that rocked. Everybody gets up. Well, it's you know some like 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 you and I were talking. Someday maybe I'll put together a little a little uh, a little project where I do more of my original music. But uh, right now I'm just happy to play with these guys. We do a few of my songs, probably three or four. Okay, that's good. I've been thinking about that playlist. Okay, our song this week has to be on it because it is jumping. World gone crazy. Aren't you proud of that one? I, well, I am. Yeah, I'm proud of that one. And, uh, you know, I think uh, the times kind of calls for songs like that. No, but I'm talking about the music because I've never really ridden a horse. Well, maybe I have, but never really going fast. But I feel like I could do the music at the start of this. It's got a beat like you're riding a horse. Yeah, it gets it's a you beat. going. It's, it's a rock. Yeah, it's a rocker. It's It's definitely a rock song. I think yeah. that if you played it at Gold Hill, that everybody would get up and dance to this too, and they, right. and they would crazy dance. <laughs> okay, you could lead them, Craig. Anyway, have you ever thought about all the meanings of the words you choose? Probably not. What are you talking? What are you uh, alluding it's to? A world here? gone crazy, a world gone mad. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. You keep saying that in the song. Yeah. How many meanings of, are yeah. there of mad? I mean, the mad is, it's- How many It's meanings? crazy. Well, it's another, reiter- it's a reiteration of the word crazy, right? What else? But it's also angry. What else? Um, insane. M-A-D, an acronym for- Oh. Mutually Assured Destruction. Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. That too. But that's another D. But Mutually Assured Destruction, and you go off on gun control. In yes, this song? I do. I talk about it, how it might be it might be a good place to start banning assault weapons, and um, and I also allude to the the difficulty in in uh, Congress as far as actually passing bills. Yes, no, you're you're really good, and uh, it's one that gets a little crazy. You get a little frantic in this song, right? Right, a little frenetic in terms of the uh, like some of the lead guitar work and that kind of thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like it. Good. You could play it in the insane asylum. <laughs> I'll make sure to bring it when I, I go. Here, there you go, Nurse Ratchet. <laughs> it's a world gone crazy. Who who else is playing on this, or is this all you? You know, my buddy, my good buddy T. Valadaris. Yeah, plays some rhythm guitar on this, mm. and um, I think that was. Um, I think that's the um, only guy, other than the the um, um, you know Michael Wooten played drums. Sammy Fuqua again plays um, plays bass, and then the guitars fill it out. But you know, I think I'm pretty sure Papamo plays the um, B3 organ on this. Nice. Yeah. All right. So here's what I'm thinking. It's great for this week. You probably still haven't watched it, but Yevgeny Prigozhin getting shot down. When he's flying in a private jet, him and about ten no, others didn't see it. But I, you know, I was I was riveted to the radio when I heard, yeah. And Putin giving a glorious speech at the time, and it's like I okay, I did a public hit. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, it's a world of retribution. It's a world gone mad. Right. And then these he practically uh, could he probably could he could probably say that yeah. I decided to do that. And what would what would the repercussions be? And then you have Donald Trump posing for this mugshot. And as we record late on a Friday, when asked, that, how are you sleeping? Are you worried about it? He gave one of the worst 
answers. I've heard it from athletes before. I think Kenyon Martin said it when Darren Williams got shot and killed after his birthday party. It was kind of beginning. Anyway, he said, well, it is what it is. Right. I just like. Right. I don't like that comment. It is what it is. That's what Trump said when yeah. asked about whether he can sleep well. It is what it is. You know, something happened. I don't really have any responsibility for it. You know, that's kind of the cop out. It's not my fault. What I like about your song and all your songs, you even have a line about looking in the mirror, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, maybe Kenyon Martin, maybe your party got a little out ahead. You know, maybe Donald Trump, you should have just not tried to cheat like you did win club championships. The presidency ain't like that. You can't bully the club pro. You can't threaten and fire him like you did. I mean, it's a it's a slam dunk case. And I know Jenna Ellis. I've never really known somebody with a 100K bond, I don't think, except maybe when I represent them, you know? Well, she's. I'm sure she was able to... Uh... To make bond, make bail, right? Did you see her smile on her mugshot? No, I don't watch that. It's no, a I didn't time. look at any of their. Did oh, you, I saw. You, I did. I, yeah, I haven't Trump. escaped. I haven't escaped Trump's mugshot. He's like a Batman villain. What's he doing? He's staring like Steve Harrington stared at me when I was prosecuting him for killing Tom Holler. I mean, and do you know what he claimed his height and weight was? Yeah, you told me. It sounds like it sounds Six, a little three two fifteen. Now, what does your driver's license say about you? My my driver's license is accurate. What does it say? Six three. <laughs> no five five eleven, I believe. And um, and <laughs> Do you one, believe it? It's true. And one one eighty or one eighty five. And is like that, that true? See yeah, now, mine yeah. mine's not true because. I've had a couple surgeries. I'm older. Mine says six five two fifty, but I'd say right now I'm six three two twenty two. Okay, so it kind of pisses me off that Donald Trump says he's six three two fifteen, and he's my height, and that he weighs less than me. That pisses me off. In his, you know, he's the kind of guy he looks in the mirror and he sees a guy who's ripped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then he puts out playing cards and sells them, and so. The mugshot, he's selling it for like T-shirts, $39.95, whatever. It's got to be official. It's like Nuggets paraphernalia. And these cult members are buying it. And you know why? It's a world gone crazy. The same reason they're buying everything else that he says. But, exactly. Uh, yeah, you could see he put some thought into that, into that mugshot. Right, right. <laughs> anyway. Oi. It's a world gone crazy. Your music's so perfect, but this is going to be on your playlist. I'm going to... You're going to help me I'm going to go back to Gold Hill next uh, year, but I want 10 songs from you, okay? Gold Hill said they wanted us next year, not this September. They have a, they have a um, crawfish uh, boil, um, special dinner in the fall, and so... They already booked it, but when they when we played there last time, they said we got to get you for next year. So it's going to be twenty twenty four. Now, when you when you do get tips and you do get a lot, I think at that gig, people were throwing twenties in there. People were happy. You they know were, why? People were very generous. Yes, yeah. because people were falling in love there. Did you see that? There well, was romance going on. I 
Tell me about it. <laughs> I was busy playing. I didn't no, see the romance. There was, I mean, it was a town. It was a gathering, and it was outdoors. It was summer. It was perfect. God, what a thrill it must be to be on this stage to do that. At this stage in your life, too. That's right. At this stage in my life, I want to keep doing it. Ken right. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Greg. Everybody give a lesson to our troubadour, Dave Gunder's World Gone Crazy. News flash across my screen, won't sink in. Hate raining down on us once more. Had no time to process, now it's gone down again. I'm thinking that tomorrow there'll be more. Some kind of madness drift across our land Too much talk, not enough listening
Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaeldailylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Gosh, it's nice to have such an esteemed member of my profession in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge once again. Tom Overton, welcome back. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Back in the day, you reminded me. In our radio days, we had a team of paralegals, and we offered whatever... Anybody desired, and I always fulfilled the drink request. You had a Bloody Mary, as I recall. I think I probably did. It was early Saturday morning. You know, that was pre-pandemic, pre-Donald Trump. Everything's changed. You know how it is, Tom. It has changed, but, uh, you know, it's still still a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, I had you on because you'd won a phenomenal case You do that with frequency, but let's get to the roots of you. Where did you grow up, Tom? I grew up in East Tennessee. Well, that's unusual. I don't think I've ever been there. What was that like? Well, I I grew up a few miles from the Smoky Mountains, which is, in my opinion, just a gorgeous national park. Uh, it was the South, and the I was born in the late fifties, um, as I think you may have been, and. Uh, so I was a child in the 60s and 70s, and uh, it was a certainly a different time, probably maybe, I won't say more innocent time. It was a time of change then as well. Um, and um, after uh, I got out of high school, I went to college at Davidson College in North Carolina and then to the University of Tennessee Law School. 
moved out here in uh, early 1982 and um, thought I'd be here for a year and move home, but I liked it and stayed, and Denver has been my home now for more than 40 years. And you've been a Colorado attorney for over 40 years, am I right? Yes, you are. Well, we're in the 40-plus club. Did you think we'd ever make it? I really didn't, uh, but I'm I'm happy to be here and and still standing, as they say. There've been a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of. I, I think we've helped you and I both have helped a lot of people uh, over over the years, and that's really what it's all about. Well, thank you for saying that. It's a bit of a minefield because you do help people. The law is challenging, especially other lawyers. But then there are true professionals like you. And well, thank you. You have turned a lot of your attention to making sure that the bar is professional. That we we really have a profession rather than something less than that. And I've taken such pride when I became a lawyer, and for over four decades, and I've never seen our uh, practice, our profession, quite under the threat that we're under right now. Tell everybody about your background, why you chose to involve yourself in bar activities. And uh, I kind of get scared when I even talk about it, but you handle discipline and ethics and taking away people's ability to practice law. Explain your path in that regard. Well, that was just one way of giving back to the profession. Uh, I have acted as a hearing officer uh, under the state system for people who uh, have been brought up on bar charges. Um, I've done other roles there. It's all um, volunteer work. I also uh, acted as the uh, chair of the, uh, they call it the Committee on Conduct in the federal court, which does essentially the same thing in federal courts in, in terms of investigating lawyer misconduct. It's nothing that we like to do. And I frankly think, I you know, 99% of the lawyers are, are great people and, and do things very ethically, but now and then people get in trouble and, um, you know, that has to be investigated. And in the proper case, uh, it has to be addressed. And that's what uh, I know some of the people you've talked about on your show in recent months have, have had some problems with that um, in the system and, and they've been addressed appropriately. Uh, so that's, that's really my background. I, I, um, when when other lawyers have ethics questions, oftentimes I'll get a call and we'll try to work through them to help them, you know, stay out of trouble and do the right thing. And and it sounds easy, but in in reality, in the issues we face on a day to day basis, uh, it it can be very complicated in terms of what your obligations and and your duties are to um, people with differing interests. So, you know, it's but. I, I'm a big believer in the system, and, and that's my way, uh, one of the ways that I have been able to give back. I've also done a lot of work with various organizations related to the bar, uh, and one of those, uh, if you'll permit me when we sure. uh, get to that point, uh, is the American Board of Trial Advocacy, which I'm a member, and which recently uh, was able to get legislation passed for to start the very first Juror Appreciation Day here in Colorado, which is coming up in September, um, and at, at some point we can talk about that. Well, as we're well. going to get to that, but I'd be appreciative of juries too if I had all your success. In fact, I have had success 
I'm not sure as great as you because you've been a civil attorney so long. Tell everybody about your practice because it's not that you just sit in judgment of others. You've been on the playing field forever and navigating it very well. And and I I think the beautiful thing about the justice system, from my perspective, is if you do it right, you can achieve some justice for your clients and make a decent living as well. You don't have to do anything unethical to get there. Isn't that your experience? It, it is. It's not, you know, lawyers aren't getting rich. There are other better, more efficient ways to do that. But I think we provide a good service and we do make a decent living. There's no question about that. Um, you know, you asked about my practice. I have a general civil litigation practice. And over the years, I've handled a, a wide variety of civil trials. And that's anything from complex business disputes to cases involving serious personal injuries and death. Um, and at this point in my career, I'm often brought in by other lawyers to uh, try their cases, the cases they've been working on, but for whatever reason, haven't been able to get resolved. Um, and in the last few years, um, it seems like I've uh, really been doing an awful lot of work with, I, I like to call them business divorces, smaller and medium-sized businesses that are splitting up and the shareholders or, or members of their LLCs are not able to get along and you have to to help them work through the process to get a, a fair separation, to, fair to both sides in terms of getting the um, the business either wrapped up or sold and people being treated appropriately. A lot of times you'll see that at the second generation where it's been a family business and, and the second generation folks just can't quite get along, the uh, cousins and the brothers and sisters and that kind of thing. So that that's, uh, you know, in a nutshell, really what I do. But I, and, you know, I have learned uh, that the jurors, you know, I, I have the utmost respect. They, they always get it right. Collectively, uh, the the, juror, the jury is my, they're the smartest guy in the room, so to speak. And so uh, we always, you know, try to keep that in mind as well. But I've... Um, I guess in a nutshell, that's that's my what my practice has been. Yeah, that word collective. I guess uh, maybe Lauren Bobert wouldn't like it, and uh, her <laughs> former friend MTG. But how many times I've stood before a jury and said, you know, really humbly, look if you remember something different than what I'm saying, use your collective memory. There are twelve of you. I'm confident that your collective memory and common sense. We'll get to the right result. And I've placed a lot of faith in the American people, but lately my faith has been a little tested. How about you? Well, it has been. But let me say that uh, for those of you who who are listening that may not know, Craig was just a rock star prosecutor. Uh, he helped achieve justice for many, many people. Um, personally, I think he should have been DA, but that's a story you can tell another time. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's always gratifying to look back and, and know that you've, you've helped, helped people, but you're right. It's been very disappointing. Some of the things that have happened recently, particularly with our U S Supreme court, uh, it, it's just disillusioning, but, you know, I think the system is strong enough to get through it. We just need to, um, take control in the sense of, um, you know, getting 
Let the system work. Let, let's pick a what? jury. Let, let's let's uh, put on the evidence. A, that's exactly right. No one is above uh, is above the law, and you know, the jury they're they're hearing these high profile cases right now will will certainly get it right. And I think whatever the result is, they should be respected. Uh, and you know, it's uh, I'm a huge believer in, in uh, the organization that I mentioned before. You know, we have a dual mission, and that's to protect civil jury trials and to help preserve the independence of the judiciary and i when the ju- when the judges become politicized i think that 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 hurts everyone and i'm to some extent that's what's happened or that was what the efforts are, have been and um you know i do think that now that we're starting to to see a, a few years later after some of the events that have gone on that see people um being called to task that the, the jury will have an opportunity to um, to make the call. Whatever that call is, I certainly will respect it. But I, I do want to throw out a quote here. It's really my favorite quote when it comes to juries, and it's by Thomas Jefferson all the way back in 1788 when the country was just getting started. And, and he said, I consider trial by jury is the only anchor ever yet imagined by man by which government can be held to the principles of its constitution. And uh, I, I believe that firmly, and I, I think that we're starting to see that in action. I believe in it. I think that a jury comes in and really takes their responsibilities seriously. And they do commit to judging it based on the evidence they hear in a courtroom. And politics should stay out of it. And it's fascinating, Tom, that you used that term a dual system. But right now, everybody's arguing about a dual system of justice. And uh, Trump, I don't even like saying his name, but defendant Trump and many of his 18 co-defendants down in Atlanta, they're saying, hey, it's a dual system of justice. I'm a victim of a dual system of justice. And you know, he had a mugshot taken, and Dan Kaplan said, that's Gestapo. And three, anyway, I'll play this sound, and I'm thinking, holy cow, that's just the start of our justice system. They treated him with maximum courtesy. He got to use a pose. Some people said, oh, you're putting him under danger? No, he's grifting off of it. Anyway, you didn't necessarily need to get dragged into this conversation, but when they say a dual system of justice, I'm thinking, holy cow, it's like fake news. They've taken the term aimed at them and tried to turn it around. I'll shut up. You talk for a minute. You, you talk well, about I, that, I, Tom. I, I don't think there's a dual, dual system of justice. In fact, I think we all have to live by the same system, no matter who we are. Uh, I will say that um, you know what you're doing, Craig, with your educating your audience and shining a light on some of the propaganda that's out there uh, is it's the best part of the democratic process. And, and, you know, that process has been under attack and, and I think it's been under attack by some folks who would prefer an authoritarian system uh, where they get to, to decide the rules and decide um, all the things that, that as citizens, we have a right and a duty to, to decide at the ballot box. And so I'm really um, proud of you for the work you do and um, 
And I think we're seeing live demonstration that, uh, you know, no matter how it turns out, uh, that no one is above the law and that um, if if you uh, take certain actions, there may, there may well be consequences. Well, let's talk about litigation because you are a master over four decades and civil litigation kind of gives me still the willies because, <laughs> you know, motions start flying. You look at your email. Oh, my gosh. And, and now with the uh, litigation involving Trump, all these defendants and these judges are saying, uh, file this by the end of the weekend. I'm going to rule in two days. So just tell everybody the demands of litigation, especially your federal litigator. What's it like? I mean, it's good to be young, right? And people think these briefs get written easily. I don't know about you, but this takes hard work. Lawyers are pulling all-nighters right now, aren't they? Oh, anytime you're doing civil litigation, uh, or uh, yes, uh, there's a lot of uh, every issue of law is being uh, debated. There's a lot of scholarship that goes into it in terms of research and writing. Uh, that takes a lot of time, and you have to be creative. Uh, but it's absolutely a 24/7 job. You know, we uh, may have a hearing coming up that uh, it, for every hour you spend uh, in the courtroom, you're probably spending 10 or more hours outside of the courtroom. Uh, and the briefs that we're doing, um, it's just in a, in a regular case, let alone something as constitutionally significant as what's going on now. Um, now, you've probably you probably know, had super complicated cases, but 18 co-defendants? I mean, what's the biggest unwieldy case you were ever a part of? Well, I had cases that were uh, massive financial fraud cases. Uh, I've had, uh, you know, used to defend Bridgestone on tire separation cases. Uh, some of those uh, with, with horrendous facts and complicated facts can go six or eight weeks, although that's unusual. I mean, I it should not take in a, um, you know, you would know better than I, but a criminal case, it shouldn't take months to try that. It's, it, but it does because it does move forward more quickly with the Speedy Trial Act. Um, but, you know, some of them get pretty complicated and, and, you know, then the judges have to work hard and make, make the call. And uh, that's why it's so critical that we have an independent judiciary so that everyone gets a fair shot. Right. And the administration of justice, it's such a big deal. Judges have to make these huge calls. How do cases get settled in your experience? In mine, it's pressure points, a, a hearing coming up, a deadline for this, something for the, you know what I mean? They don't just happen out of nowhere. You need to give deadlines like Bonnie Willis <laughs> did. Turn yourself that's in by Friday, right? That that's absolutely right. You know, when you find that your clients are staring down the barrel of the trial, all of a sudden both sides get more reasonable. Uh, but in the civil side, generally speaking, there's uh, more disclosure, and as things work through, uh, both sides know. Uh, particularly in a, in a business business case, they both know what the risks are, what the rewards will be. 
what the legal issues are and what their their probability of success is. And then they can make a, a call in terms of, um, you know, do they want to settle the case or not? But you're right, that, that rarely happens unless there are pressure points. Uh, and, um, you know, in, a, in an injury case, it's a little different uh, and because, you know, who knows what a, it, it's the value of being not being in a wheelchair for the rest of your right. life is. However, there again, I think those pressure points are even more more critical because, say, it's a medical malpractice case and the doctor doesn't want it on his or her record, um, then they're more likely to resolve that. The other side of that is, you know, the person who's making the allegations, sometimes they're not as well-founded as they could be, and, you know, they don't want to be uh, have the light of a jury shine on them either. Uh, so you're, you're hundred percent correct, Craig. There, there are points in time when there's leverage or pressure or whatever you want to call it, that things tend to get done. The process is expensive as well. It, it, you kind of have to be rich to litigate or have a contingency fee case. It's, it, it's, hey, well, that's, go ahead. I'm sorry. That That's exactly right. Uh, you know, when lawyers take contingency fee cases, they're not, chasing ambulances they're making it possible for people to uh, who can't work to have their day in court uh, you know if they had to pay by the hour they could not do that they're trying to survive and feed their family when they've been injured uh, and so that that's a, a big part of the system and it's a necessary part of the system and in my opinion uh, access to justice is one of the the biggest uh, most critical issues we have because it's not just rich white Americans who should be entitled to justice. We all should be entitled to a day in court. And, uh, you know, it's the other side of the coin. Everyone is, is uh, responsible to the same system and, and has to obey the same laws. But at the same time, um, you don't want justice just for those who can afford to have it, which is why lawyers do so much uh, free legal work. We call it pro bono. And, and you know, I think as lawyers... Uh, all of us try to do, uh, I think the, the standard that we aspire to is all about 40, 50 hours a year just of, of uh, representing people who can't otherwise, otherwise afford it. Right, and sometimes we do it by accident. But my late brother Bill <laughs> and my partner David Olivas and I took on a Fortune 500 company that were cheating Hispanic grocery store customers in Colorado. And I got a taste of you know, big-time law firms, and they tried to spend money and out paper us and do everything to make us go away, every trick up their sleeve. And I saw the power of big money, and I bet you've seen that a million times. And that's what I'm worried about right now, Tom. The power... Every case, and it's a, it's a very legitimate concern. Uh, we just don't want this country to be where um, where only the, the wealthy get justice. And and that's just a huge concern. I, I, I agree with you. You get into those uh, big commercial cases and motions are filed and, and it takes someone who's tenacious and someone who, who um, you know, believes in the cause to continue on. Right. But at the end of the day, if they're able to get it to the jury, in my experience, the jury always does the right thing. It may yep. not be the thing that, that my client wants, but it's always the right thing. If they can get it to a jury, because you can have all sorts of tactics to delay things. Hell, 
you can have a trial about to start and a judge, uh, star witness has COVID, right? I mean, COVID's going right. around again. Anything can happen. We, we've seen it, but the effect of money, the various motions and tactics and lawyers and law firms, if you hire like, if you have unlimited money, and the reason I bring it up, Tom, is this. Rudy Giuliani, he's broke. So what does Donald Trump announce? He announces there's going to be a dinner, September 7th, Bedminster, to raise money. How much is it? $100,000 a person. Now, I think that's an opportunity for bad actors to influence the guy they hope to become president again. Say Putin. I, I think they're trying to buy influence is exactly what's going on. Right, but, but foreign powers buying influence would... Trump take uh, Russian laundered money? I think so. Would Putin be willing to spend? I'm just saying the possibilities of corruption are endless. And as Trump goes down and the GOP gives them the reins to the party, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to lie, cheat, and steal. I don't know if you want to go there, Tom, but it just gets back to the question that we're about to see if somebody can ruin our system of justice through the expenditure of up to billions of dollars. Well, I don't really want to go down that road. I, I tend to agree with you, but again, I think the the jury will figure that out. Uh, you know, I'm I'm appalled at what I read about the millions of dollars in legal fees. Um, you know, I, I frankly don't understand how they get there, um, and uh, I. I think that's a perfect example of, you know, you, you're paying a hundred thousand dollars for a dinner to, to go have um, dinner with this particular presidential candidate. Uh, and I, and, you know, foreign money in, in dark money after yes. the Citizens United case is, yes. it, it's a real problem. Um, and one that, um, you know, I frankly don't know how to solve, but it, it's, um, it, it undermines the entire system and people's faith in the system, and it's just not um, not something that, right. how, in, in my mind, my mind should be tolerated. How many seats at the dinner will Harlan Crow buy? I mean, and he's just one of many people who are letting Clarence and Jenny Thomas live the large life. Now, maybe you can't comment on that and just say no comment, but. Our Supreme well, Court. I, I can come in to tell you that I, I think what's happened with our Supreme Court, uh, Justice Thomas, uh, some of the other justices, and I don't want to go too far down that road, but it, it's a disgrace. It uh, it troubles me deeply, and uh, hopefully, it's something that as as a or an organized bar uh, that we'll be able to have some influence on and uh, and prevent from happening in the future. But again, once you politicize the bench, uh, then things like that are going to happen. You know, I don't want you to go too far, Tom. I don't because I want you to be the steady influence you are on the Bar Association. And anybody hearing you can tell you have a soothing presence and it's backed up by wisdom accumulated from over four decades of practice. Me, I'm kind of out here a little bit of a wild man right now in my fifth decade of practice because 
frankly, somebody has to speak out. And maybe if I was 30 or 40 years old, just leaving the DA's office, not wanting to bother anybody or to alienate anybody in a law firm or, you know, in a clientele. But I think a lot of people are kind of on the sidelines for that reason. But somebody has to speak out because what I'm seeing right now could collapse our legal system and our democracy. I hope it absolutely could. And and again, you know, I think what you're doing and I and I said this before, so I apologize for repeating myself, but I think what you're doing and and shining a light on all the propaganda and uh you know, not lining up with some of the media outlets and not being intimidated, uh I mean that's that's a protection of democracy in my mind. On both sides. I, I think I don't think anyone should be uh, intimidated. I don't I think all views should be heard, but in particular, um that's exactly when you have something like uh, January 6th, that's exactly what they're trying to do is to shut down opposition. Um, it's just not uh, it's not in line with our system of government and, the, and the, what the founding fathers uh, had in mind when they when they helped establish this country. And a lot of Republicans know it. Jason Dunn, the former U.S. attorney appointed by Donald Trump. He came on a recent episode, Dick Wadhams, trying to battle in the Republican Party. I'd like to give them a forum and an outlet. And you've been a great supporter of mine by listening. When did you start listening to me, Tom? I really appreciate smart guys like you. I think I, li- I, think I started listening to the very first podcast. I, um, I don't remember exactly when that was, but it's been a while now because uh, you've been doing this and you've... Uh, gone the extra mile to try and and help people and get the word out. And and, um, so it's been really since the beginning is when I started listening. Wow. That's over three years ago. And so, yeah, you you know, you do, you did mention one thing here about some of the lawyers, you know, we've had instant embarrassment really, I I think, um, and uh, I won't be involved in any of the discipline on any of these folks, but and was not involved, but we've had a couple of lawyers with Colorado ties that um, really have not upheld their oaths as lawyers to um, protect the Constitution and and to um, you know really just try to do the right thing. I, I think that's what legal ethics boils down to is you know do the right thing, and and that uh, we're we're seeing a lapse in that. It's very very disappointing. I get a lot of ego out of saying I'm a Colorado attorney. I take pride in that. I always have. My dad was a Colorado lawyer. My grandpa was. My big brother. I don't want it to be embarrassed by Jenna Ellis or, you know, anybody else. You don't do that, right? Well, yes, I I agree. And when you're a Colorado lawyer that uh, makes... An agreement that yes, that you made false statements to the press, and then you turn around the next day and um, and say, oh well, but I never agreed that I lied. I did. I don't. Uh, that's just very troubling. Um, and you know, we've got Professor Eastman. I and I realize he wasn't really a Colorado lawyer, but he certainly has Colorado connections, and and it's just um, just very disappointing to see people with Colorado connections, because I too am very, very proud to be a Colorado lawyer and 
to see Colorado uh, people with the connections uh, involved in the, the quagmire that this is, has become. And I don't like to speak out against other lawyers. And one thing I've done throughout my practice, and it served me well, I've always presumed that the lawyer on the other side is a decent person. And that's my default approach. And I try to be professional and nice. And usually that works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Don't you think that's the right approach? Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, I'm rarely disappointed when I assume the best of other people, but lawyers in particular, I, I think. Uh, notwithstanding some of the the jokes and the press and and the, that kind of thing, I mean, we've to do this job. You have to be very dedicated. Uh, you have to want to help people in the system, and um, you know, I, very few people are just not trustworthy or 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 intentionally disagreeable. It, it happens, but it's oftentimes you'll find if you uh, go into it, uh, you know, and I've learned through the disciplinary system, maybe there's a drug or alcohol problem, or maybe somebody's just having a really bad day because they've got family issues or other things. And for the most part, uh, for the vast most part, uh, I think Colorado lawyers are ethical and, and are good people. And I always say, I agree with you, I always make that assumption. And that's why I'm reaching out to lawyers to help support my new effort called Craig's Colorado Corner. I'm putting lawyers well, let, and Let me know how I can help with oh, that. Oh, you are already helping. You were, we, we, we appreciate your help. And people like Michael Bailey, I don't know if you heard Michael. He's a referee, and he said, of course people complain about calls. And, of course, in a courtroom, people object. I heard Trump say at the tarmac after he got arrested in Atlanta, he said, Look, I won, and everybody knows it, and I have a right to object, and that's America. Of course you can object and raise concerns about an election or anything, but it's the way that you do it, right? You can bring it up an objection. You just can't let it go too far. Well, I heard Michael say that a couple of weeks ago, and I had to smile because I de- definitely agree with him, and I was glad to see that he takes some of the lessons we learn as lawyers onto the court with him when he's uh, acting as a basketball referee. And yes, I agree. Of course you can object, but you should do it honestly. Um, and and that becomes a problem when you don't. And you can never have violence involved. You can never in absolutely. a court of law give any hint of violence, right? I absolutely agree with that. There's never an excuse for violence. And, um, you know, there's never an excuse for insurrection there are better ways to do that and and when you see things uh, and hear the things that that we've we now know to be true coming out of uh january 6th that it, it's uh it, it's almost incomprehensible to me one of the greatest things about you being a listener is you give me feedback and you read the books that my authors recommend one recently affected you and it affected me and I heard from a lot of listeners. It was Bradley Onishi preparing for war. He grew up in Orange County, became an evangelical minister. How come that episode in that book got to you the way it got to me? Well, it did get to me. I've uh, read it twice now, and I've given it to both family and friends. Part of it was because he he demonstrates not only how we got here, going back to the 1950s, uh, but he also, um, you know, 
calls out and draws parallels to things I grew up as, as we said earlier in the South in the sixties and seventies. And it's not in my family. And I want to emphasize never in my family, but at school we were fed, you know, the, uh, the myth of the lost cause in which uh, the uh, war between the states, it was never called the civil war uh, was a bunch of greedy uh, northerners who came down to oppress the South and that and, and exploit them economically, and that uh, of course slavery had nothing to do with the war. It was all about states' rights. And you know when you indoctrinate your children that way in the schools, I mean it's it's insidious, and we're seeing that again. I mean people wanted uh, basically the system was built on white males having all the power, being the head of the household, uh, just like uh, God was head of the of heaven and, and people had to be subservient and, and they um, made up the myth that the, the folks who uh, were slaves or domestic workers were somehow members of the family and better off because uh, of the education and the opportunities they were afforded by by the uh, by, their quote betters, uh, you know we're seeing that again. We're seeing it in Florida. We're seeing it uh, here in the country. It's it's very distressing, and I think that's why that book resonated with me so much. Well, thank you for that. And you know, through the years, the way I stumbled into the media was as a legal analyst. Some of my court cases were covered by Court TV and the media. And I'm old enough to have covered OJ when I was a chief deputy, and then Jean Benet and. Kobe Bryant, I used to kid around that, you know, I, I tried to call them as I saw them, and they had Morgan Firm uh, dislike me during Jean Bonnet. I stopped getting invited to their party, and then uh, during, <laughs> during Kobe Bryant, they liked me again because I didn't think he was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and that it was a weak case, and it was dismissed. So I started getting invited again, but the, the warm turns in the practice of law, and so many great Colorado lawyers. We had the pleasure last weekend of both being at the memorial for the late Walter Garash. I got a kick out of being around all those superstar lawyers like you and hearing people talk. Why were you there, and what were your thoughts on that day? Well, Walter was both a mentor and an inspiration to not one, but at least a couple of generations of lawyers. Uh, I never had the privilege of working with Walter, but I knew him. He was always gracious and was always willing to share his wisdom and always willing to stop and talk to anyone. And as you know, he was um, the master of, of civil rights, uh, of uh, defending civil rights in Colorado uh, at a time when they desperately needed to be defended, whether that was taking clients over uh, that, that were Black Panthers or uh, representing the local mosque during the 9-11 years. Um, Walter was was always there and was very passionate about it and um, and also was was very colorful. And, and I was there uh, to pay respect to the uh, to one of the giants of our profession. Me too. And sometimes it takes guts to stand up in the system, but we stand on the shoulders of giants. And I turn to you for wisdom, even though I may be older than you, we're contemporaries, we're in the same fifth decade club yeah. now. 
And, and you know what makes me really mad, Craig, even what? though you were, a year, you were a year older than me, is you were a much better basketball player than I was, and I'm still mad about that, but I guess I'll have to get over that. Well, that's all right. That I am just an overgrown chalk. What about you? Did you grow up playing in East Tennessee? Is that why you're hurt? You didn't think a Colorado boy could compete? <laughs> well, as, uh, yes, I did. I did play football in college, but I always wanted to play basketball. That was always my favorite sport. And uh, as as you will recall, uh, there were we had what was called lawyers league basketball where a lot of the firms had teams and we both competed in that. And then some of those games would get kind of heated, but they were always fun and, and always, uh, you know, at the end, very professional where we could go out and, and, uh, enjoy each other's company afterwards. But, uh, I did just want to mention you, uh, you were a heck of a scorer and, um, and had some pretty sharp elbows. So oh boy! I want, yeah. I want to pay homage to that. No, no, that that that's so cool. Those days are gone. But what I can do, and I just want to get back to Craig's Colorado Corner because I put on two episodes, and this Monday I'm going to at six in the morning drop a show with Susan Stubson. The people I meet on this podcast remember her. She's the friend of Liz Cheney. Actually, her husband I ran do. against Liz Cheney. She's so smart. She writes for the Casper paper, but also the New York Times. And her dance partner on Craig's Colorado Corner is going to be her husband. Her husband, oh. who ran against Liz Cheney, was a legislative leader for the Republicans in Wyoming. And boy, what they've gone through over there you know, calling out Donald Trump in their church, in their political party in Wyoming, and they're going to give us a full report. Well, I, I think that's going to be fascinating and entertaining. I I don't know um, about husband and wife. I imagine they'll have some, some repartee going back. That's and what forth. I'm thinking. And, and I, I will definitely tune in. And I definitely want it to be fascinating and entertaining, but... I want it to be educational because when I tried to do legal analysis on the big cable shows, when I was blessed to do that and be young and my mustache was dark. You remember that? I had a dark mustache back then. <laughs> anyway, I just tried to give people an idea of how the law worked. I wanted to educate them. And that's what I want to do with these litigations against Trump. He's charged with 91 felonies. I want to offer the best analysis, and I can't offer it alone. That's why I'm going to have smart people on, other lawyers, other journalists who will offer their own perspective, and that's how we learn, right? That's what the well, law really to, is. It's nonstop a, learning. A, absolutely. Ab absolutely. And and when we no longer learn, I want to be finished. But I, I, I think I said earlier, and I I will say it again. I think your program is all about education and educating the public, and and I think think that's you know a true service that you're you're doing to all of us. Uh, you did mention the indictment. I, again, I don't want to go too far down that road, but I will say uh, people should read it. Uh, it's a masterclass in how to lay out a case and the strategy behind it, and who was indicted and who wasn't. And and uh, you talked about pressure points. Uh, there certainly are some pressure points that are apparent to someone who who understands the system uh, through that indictment, and it gives us an idea of where uh, where things may be going. So I, I, um, 
and I'm talking about the uh, January 6th case on that, but also in the Georgia case. It's Those documents are out there for the public, and I would encourage people to read them. Right, and for people who have trouble reading, and honestly, I think I've developed a disease where I start to fall asleep when I read legal stuff too, you can listen to it, and you can listen to it like you should. My podcast may be on two times speed on Spotify, three times speed, but what I like is that a lot of other people who are trying to educate the public are reading the indictment, Ali Velshi, or they're doing it with some other people with great voices, because these words are chosen, each one with magnificent wordsmithing, you know, to make fun on Jack Smith's indictment. This is the best of our United States biggest law firm. They've been working on this for years. Some people say, oh, it's too late, election interference. Well, a lot of this evidence is just coming out, and it's not easy to put it together just right. There are so many moving parts, aren't there? Absolutely. And um, you talk about other podcasts. I, you know, um, there's one called, I think, Talking Feds. That's yes, love a, it. A, a marvelous uh, Colorado lawyer named Lisa Wayne, who also happened to be one of the speakers at the uh, Garash Celebration of Life, uh, was on that recently, talking about the very thing that you just mentioned. Um, so I I recommend that to people. Uh, you know, if you in uh, there, you can't listen to to too much Craig Silverman. But I think also if you uh, want to tune into another one and understand some of these things that are going on, Talking Feds, it's a pretty good place to start. Great minds think alike. I saw Lisa at the event, and I'd reached out to her through uh, Gary Jackson, and she's going to come on the show. She was super with uh, Harry, and I've had him in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, too. Uh, Harry Littman, the star of his own podcast. Now, it's a community, and I'm loving it because I think most of them are dedicated to the truth. Harry Littman, he has his own podcast, and it, it, this new technology is really something. Who would have thought when we were banging heads in in the 80s on no. the basketball court that we'd be doing these podcasts together? Uh, it never would have occurred to us. I, I, it wasn't even a, a glimmer in our minds. You mentioned uh, Judge Gary Jackson, uh, and you know, I just want to say he's one of the people that I've, I've learned so much from him, particularly on uh, seeing through some of the uh, racial things, and it does does relate to the uh, what you call or what everyone calls, and, and it's properly called the big lie. And um, you know, white Christian nationalism, as Brad Oshini talked about on your podcast, um, to to see things through that lens. And he's he's very um, he's he's a kind and gentle teacher, but he also calls it the way it is. And uh, you know, he he's someone who else who. I'm glad you mentioned him because he's also recognized as one of the the true uh, patriarchs of our profession here in Colorado. Yes, and a member of the George Washington High School Hall of Fame. So I did not know. Oh, absolutely! And he's he's fantastic. So are you, Tom Overton? Really appreciate your support. Can't thank you enough. Now I know you are modest, but. People will say, I need a business divorce. I need this guy's help. He could soothe my family's problems. Give out your number. Give out your website. People want to talk to you. 
Well, thank you, Craig. I, our website is pretty easy. Uh, it's uh, OvertonLawFirm.com. My email is not very creative, but I can remember it. It's Tom.Overton at OvertonLawFirm.com. And our number, uh, if anyone wants to call, is 303-832-9249. I do appreciate that. I do want to, if you'll allow me, just indulge me just for a minute. I do want to circle back, though, and and mention. Go ahead. No, Uh, no, please do uh, circle back to the, yes. Well, it's your appreciation. This is the first one coming up. We had some, uh, some real support. The American Board of Trial Advocacy and Brad Ross Shannon took the lead on that for two or three years to get the legislation passed. And we had some, some great support uh, in the legislature and, and, from, and in the courts from uh, Chief Justice Boatwright on down. Uh, but um, September 5th is the first ever Colorado Juror Appreciation Day. And I just want to let people know how important it is to serve on a jury. I've, I've never, um, I've, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of jurors after the fact, and they all think it's one of the best things they ever did. But we had bipartisan support from Senator Bob Gardner, uh, who was chair of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, we also had support from the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Mike Wiseman. Um, and, you know, serving as a juror, in my mind, is just as important as voting. And it's what make, makes democracy work. And that's that's uh, it gets back to my favorite quote that I won't tell you again about from um, Thomas Jefferson. But it's it, it's critically important that what people do to it, it's it's an active participation in democracy. And and I think it's high time that um, we have a an official state holiday. It's not a paid day off or anything like that, but it's an official state holiday recognition for the service that jurors give us. Is there going to be a party? Is there food? (laughs) Well, I don't know. Uh, There, there may be some small celebrations around. I mean, this is a joint effort of, of the bar of the judiciary and the legislature. And uh, certainly there's recognition uh, well overdue for everyone who's ever served or, or will serve in Colorado on a jury because right. it's so critically important and it's it's their their opportunity to really participate in democracy. So we, we appreciate them so much and we just uh, thank you for letting me circle back and talk about now that. No, it's great because I've had the same experience. Never served on a jury, but I've gotten to talk to a lot of them and they love it. It's one of the most memorable things in the world. And my father-in-law was on a jury, the Ron Lyle murder jury in Jefferson County, the defense attorney, Walter oh, wow. Garash, mm-hmm. and my father-in-law led the acquittal of Ron I, Lyle. I, I remember that case, and uh, that's one of many uh, Walter had. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm proud of your father-in-law. It takes courage to stand up sometimes and do the right thing. But, um, you know, and as I said, jurors always get it right. Uh, I, I hear lawyers say, Oh, jurors don't understand They're, They, this is too complex a case. No, um, you didn't do a good job teaching the jury what they needed to know to make the right decision because collectively, um, they're always, always the smartest guy in the room. I agree with that. And I think it's interesting the date you told me is September 5, 2023. 
You know what else is happening that day? Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants have their arraignment in Atlanta right after well, Labor I, I, Day. I was not aware of that, but again, I, I'm. Uh, what, however, it turns out, it's it's about the system, and and everyone uh, is subject to the same system of justice. We and, don't have two systems in this country, and and I pray we never will. Right, and the thing about our system, it grinds slowly. God, don't we know? After over four decades, but the case eventually does go to trial or something happens. The wheels of justice grind slowly, but they grind. Am I right? Even my death penalty case, I said, if you want a case that never dies, do a death penalty case. But even that's been over for a long time now. We're so old, Tom. It it works our system if given a chance. It, it does. It does. And yes, sometimes it can be slow. And I've had cases that have gone to the Supreme Court, come back for retrial, gone to the Supreme Court again, come back again. I think my record is about 12 years on that. But uh, eventually, uh, you know, justice is served. And that's the important thing. Well, that was a great interview. Thanks again for being at Craig's Lawyers Lounge. Your support means everything to me, Tom. And uh, let's keep going strong during this fifth decade of our practice. Thanks. Let me know how I can help. All right. How about let's meet for some one-on-one next week? I'd be happy to do it. Just let me know. Not me. I was just kidding around. (laughs) I mean, basketball-wise. All right. Oh, basketball boys, you know, yes. I, I got to warn you that the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I could probably still hit a free throw cause I know you're going to foul me. Let's just play horse. Cause I can still <laughs> shoot a little bit. I, if it's, I foul you, it's going to be by accident. It's not in fact, back <laughs> in the day, those were love taps. I don't know if yeah. I, and see, we could get a little heated, but We know where to stop. Most people know where to stop. That's the other thing they bring up. Oh, Barbara Boxer or Hillary Clinton or somebody else complained, Stacey Abrams. Nobody did it like this. What are you talking about? Right? I know. I know. Well, I'm sure I'm sure your audience knows we're we're joking around, but it it, uh, it was a lot of fun. And I'll take you up on a horse game anytime you want. All right, Tom. Take care. Have a great weekend. Thanks a million. All right. Bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. 
you have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Okay, we are near the end of the show. Thank you, Tom Overton. What a great lawyer you are. What a calm, soothing presence. And I want to stay calm to tell you that Dan Kaplis just broke some basic lines when it comes to our relationship, which was, hell, it was broken pretty much a long time ago with the stands he's been taking. But the Nazi stuff, especially portraying the wrong side as Nazis, I can't stand that. That's what Peter Boyles has done through the years. And it's what Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's the Gestapo, or is what did stupid MTG say, the Gazpacho? Because she's ignorant. You just expect more from Dan Kaplis, or I did. But I'm beginning to believe, like Tom Overton said, it's about that white Christian nationalism or something that would make him talk about Gestapo because Donald Trump is going through a court process. You know, I heard George Brockler say the other day, well, it's a national matter. Listen, I ran for Denver DA. And if somebody did that while I was DA, came to Denver, threatened uh, Jenna Griswold in her Denver office, tried to steal the electoral college votes of Colorado, and I had jurisdiction, I would have done something about it, okay? I would have been aggressive because I don't think anybody should steal votes in the capital of Colorado. But George Brockler, as I played last week, implies it's political persecution, and that's bullshit. It's wrong to this black female prosecutor who was chief deputy for a long time, And then Dan Kaplis, with the most minimal start of what is considered the rule of law in America, where people have their mugshot taken on on these traffic offenses. Dan comes on, complains about everything that happens on the streets. Lock him up. Lock that guy up. He's a dope dealer. That guy's, uh, he's he's a criminal on the streets. Hook him up. Well, what do you think? Their mugshot gets taken, and we don't have riots. 
But Dan Kaplan wants people to get stirred up that Bonnie Willis is somehow, I guess, like Trump says, she must be a racist. She must be racist against white people, white Christian people. And don't you know Donald Trump? What a great Christian, because he saved all those babies. He's the leader of our cult. And if you're going to attack him, well, then we're going to call you the Gestapo because you're a damn Democrat. And he has this guy, Ryan. Ryan Schuling, who best I can tell, he came from Michigan. They have a militia there. I'm not saying he's connected to that, but he sure does make fun of the governor up there, Whitmer, who I like. He likes, and he throws kerosene on the fire. He mixes so many metaphors here. Anyway, that's the other boys you are going to hear. And in this show where we're talking about the world gone crazy, listen to how crazy it is. He predicts that Trump is going to uh, win overwhelmingly now that he's had this mugshot. And if that's true, if Dan's right, holy cow, if if this is something that justifies him saying Gestapo three times, then I'm in trouble. Because let me tell you what I've been hearing is that Donald Trump is going to have a ret- retribution tour. He's promised to be the retribution against everybody who's spoken out against him. And that would be me. That would be Kyle Clark. And I guess that's what capitalists and the people who support voting for Trump want. They want that kind of retribution. So we can't have capital punishment anymore. We cannot have a lot of things. And these guys would willingly vote that sort of person who has pledged to violence, who incited the violence on January 6th, who used the violence. Every once in a while, capitalists will say, oh, well, you know, he was a little slow, and he did maybe not react that well when the violence happened. Well, that's the conservative Jack Smith view, saying, yeah, he used it, and he kept peppering through Rudy and Jenna, the legislators, the senators, say, Tommy... Could you block it a little further? Could you help us out? We're doing our thing with the violence. Put it together. But instead, he wants to go to Holocaust Nazi references. And he broke something when he said this. I think it was on Wednesday. But this was a breaking point. Hear this. You're going to have so many Americans, and I'm talking about ones in the middle. You're going to have two big dynamics going. You're going to have uh, the people who would normally be voting for Trump now, just probably working a lot harder to get him elected. And that can make a difference Mm -hmm. if people are giving more, they're volunteering more, things like that. Intensity decides elections. And, And there's going to be so much intensity there. And you're going to have a lot of Americans looking at this former president, at Rudy Giuliani and and others now being, you know, pulled down to Georgia, arrested, mugshotted, et cetera, by a clearly, as a matter of fact, Democrat, you know, DA and what appears to be a very politically motivated prosecution. Just look at the timing. You're going to have a lot of people who will never say it and, and never talk about publicly. I think you're going to have a lot of people in the middle who think to themselves, at least, this looks very Gestapo. That you're going to have a lot of people in the middle think this looks very Gestapo. And that's not a word I'm labeling this with. I'm, I'm calling it the things I'm calling it in the language I choose. I'm just talking about what I think a lot of Americans are going to be thinking. 
this looks very Gestapo. And, and they're not going to want to live in a country like that. They may despise Trump. They, they may despise, you know, the, the stolen argument election. But this idea of arresting political opponents, because when, when now this crosses the line into a different visual, right? It crosses the line into a different evidence, which is these mugshots going out there. You're just going to have a lot of Americans thinking they, they don't want to live in a country like that where political opponents are being arrested for, for making arguments their opponents disagree with or being arrested so the opponent can keep them off the ballot. To your point, Dan, it's so much bigger than just the mugshot itself on its face. What you're doing, if you release a mugshot of the former president of the United States into the world, you are pouring kerosene on a fire. You are making that mugshot a symbol of the Pandora's box that they're opening. And I think you are galvanizing support for well, Donald Trump in a way that has never been known before. Well, and you're doing one more thing. And everybody behind the if there is a mugshot, and I, I will have to wait and see if there is a mugshot of Trump, right? If there is a mugshot of Trump, what, what everybody involved in producing that mugshot is going to know for to a certainty, in my opinion is that when you're talking about a former president, any former president, when you're talking about a former president who is a, a, a figure who's very polarizing in the country, you issue that mugshot, you might as well issue it with a bullseye over his face. You might as well issue it with a bullseye over his face because you know any former president from either party, you layer on top of that, that the crazies running around out there on the left, you issue a mugshot of the former president. Yeah, just put a bullseye on it. Okay, what did you hear there? I think that he's trying to stir up violence, projecting, confessing. It's not the left stirring up violence. It's shitty talk like that. And then Brockler, he's been bordering on violence. I drove Monday to a prison, long story, maybe someday I'll tell it on a podcast or otherwise, but I saw a guy locked up for life in a maximum security prison, and I listened to Brockler on the way, and he has a guy a lot like Ryan Schilling. His name's Billy Thorpe. Although Thorpe figured out the big lie along with Boyles, they don't have the courage to talk about it. Anyway, Brockler was on, and these guys have macho contests, 9 to 10 last Monday. I won't subject you to the whole thing, but it was ridiculous because Brockler starts talking about longing for the days when he could play Smear the Queer. I never played that in my life, but he described the game, and it sounded horrible. It was horrible. And he was longing for those days, and you could play lawn darts and do dangerous things. Listen to yourself to see if he was kidding around, but I don't think he was kidding around, although he has sort of a good sense of humor, but it's not funny to me anymore because it's got this tinge of violence that I don't like, and I don't like it in a prosecutor, and I don't like it in Trump and his promises of retribution, I don't like the Brockler says, well, I mean, he won't, look, he, he doesn't buy the big lie, but he barely stands up to it. He's got his MAGA base, and it's clear to me he wants to be DA in Douglas County. It's not clear to me he can be, but probably they're breaking off that district. He already served his terms, got term limited, 
Can he go back in where he served before? I don't know, but it seems like everybody wants out of 710. Why Why wouldn't you after everybody's pulling your pants down, especially you're pulling your own pants down? But here's Brockler's on with uh, Brockler with Billy Thorpe. And they start talking about the news. And this is where some people get their news. And there are serious criminal cases. And at one point, there's an interesting kind of fact scenario that a prosecutor would have to confront. Okay, you've got a guy who's in a road rage and he's on the hood of a car and somebody inside, can they shoot him? What are the options? And uh, there were shots fired and Brockler comments how, you know, there are other ways you could do it. And I thought, good, he's trying to de-escalate and he said you could hit the brakes and then have him fall off the car. And then he, of course, said, then you run him over. Summary execution, I guess. George Brockler, who took several months to get a non-execution of the guy who killed over a dozen people at the Aurora Theater Massacre to kill capital punishment in Colorado. But here's the great George Brockler talking about when he gets back in power. In fact, he's hoping some crimes that he wants to stick it to the defendant last long enough for him to get elected out there. Hear it for yourself right here. Also, we have a mother of a suspected accused, uh, a suspect accused of killing two brothers in a road rage shooting in I-25 in June, uh, told KMGH, our friends over there, that his son was acting in self-defense. This is the one where it's a road ragey thing, and then they pull over, and one guy jumps uh, into the onto the vehicle, and the guy starts driving away, yeah, and yeah. then the passenger reaches out the gun and shoots him. Uh, he's saying that the passenger, the guy that pulled the gun and shot the other person, he was in fear of his life at that time. Which With the dude you know, on the hood of the car? Yeah, which, again, interesting conversation. That could be an interesting idea. As far as a defense and prosecution, can yeah, you prove that's that? Interesting. Yeah, because again, you're on the hood of my car, etc., and yelling at me. Maybe I, I am a little scared. But yeah, I could get being scared. Yeah, but, but shooting, yeah, that's the he's thing. on the hood of the car. You're inside the car. Yeah. Like, don't you just do that Hollywood thing? Slam on the brakes, dude yeah. rolls off, and then you drive over him. Exactly, and or then you back up like just that? to make sure he's dead. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so, Lord. a road rage incident that threatened the life of a Greeley man. He's uh, fighting to regain mobility now. It's an awful story. Justin Young, 31, paralyzed after being shot in the spine by a driver in Greeley last oh, month. Oh God. Yeah. Now he's in therapy right now. He was driving in Greeley evening of July 16th with his fiance, 10 month old daughter. Another man pulled up next to him, said tried to egg him on into a street race. Uh, he got uh, then uh, Young was rear-ended by the driver later on. He got out to assess his truck, confrontation with the driver, driver, and again we start yelling at each other. And of course that ends in a shooting. Uh, I, I just what are we doing, people? I stop. I mean, don't ever get out of the car on the road rage and the other stuff, but. Uh, and finally, Denver Mayor Mike Johnson has announced possible locations to help create 1,000 additional units of housing during an update Empower uh, yesterday morning. Field yes. No, I heard Cherry Hills. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, no, it's not happening. That's rich. <laughs> yeah, that's, sorry about that. Uh, that was for me. Uh, Johnson said the sites are a variety of locations, all in the poor neighborhoods. Okay, I might have added that. Um, two former hotels, a site that's connected to the Corky Gonzalez Library, because one thing we know is the homeless like to read. Um, then primary vacant plots of land. So, yeah, that's what we got. That's all. We can come do the fun stuff. In a uh, you, you know, maybe what, later on we'll talk about, too. There was a dude that got apprehended from a hit and run out in Parker. Yeah, I did see that. But remember, it starts with theft. This idea yeah. that people are just stealing because they're feeding their families yeah, is no. utter garbage. These yes. are greedy, selfish, 
punk, violent criminals. Yeah, it's not Jean Valjean. He's not stealing no, bread to feed his sister. No, a baby. No, 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 not at all. Nope. And uh, we'll talk about it later, but this punk ended up running over and killing someone in a crosswalk trying to get away <laughs> and then just kept going because, you know. Yeah, you know, morals and stuff. And yeah, That's right. Yeah. And then uh, finally got caught. Uh, this is going to be an 18th Judicial District case. I think it's actually going to end up staying in Douglas County. I guess, wow. fingers crossed, it doesn't resolve bet- before January of 2025. Let's just see what happens with the new DA, whoever's down there. But this yeah. is a case that cries out for justice. Uh, yeah, it does. It's awful. Uh, unbelievable. I mean, uh, what yeah. a punk. Anyhow. Yeah. Who, knew? Uh, who knew the guy that was stealing the car had no respect for the person walking across the street? Wow. Look at my surprise to face. And, and the shoplifting, too. Like, yeah. you know, they're just stealing because they have needs. Yeah, and and they're stealing all of the medication because they just have a cold. That's right. And shoes because yes. they have so many feet. I know, all the time. Uh, yeah. Listen, we're going to cut away for a break. We're going to come back with the Thorpe. Repo- no, I did that on purpose. We're going to come back with You Choose the News. The Loser Edition by Ronco. George Brockler, 710, KNUS. Well, that could lead to a motion if the case lasts that long. But tough talk. You know, worked for John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Donald Trump. That picture, you know, uh, I don't like it. I don't want Trump with executive power. People who support Trump now, gosh, they're going to be appointed to be prosecutors all over the country as U.S. attorneys. And he's pledged that the DOJ will start firing local prosecutors, but you never hear... I haven't heard George Brockler speak out against DeSantis taking away state prosecutors. I haven't heard any of these lawyers, Kaplis or Brockler, I don't even expect anything out of Corcoran, but these threats against Fonnie Willis and Jack Smith is a crackhead. He's delusional. Jack Smith, who's served this country, and they can't speak up for him. Trump has threatened judges, and they said nothing. Nada. Anyway, Tom Overton's the kind of lawyer that I want to be. Thank you, Tom Overton, for the exceptional appearance in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I want to grow up and be like Bruce Hellerstein. I want to have a museum, and gosh, I'm honored to be going into the GW Hall of Fame with that guy. Next week, Coach Tom Asbury is my guest. He's being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh and thank you to Steve Feinsilver, a prior guest who helped make all of this happen, himself a GW legend. Wow, Troubadour, I'm crazy for you, and it's crazy world out there. World Gone Crazy is one of my top 10 Dave Gunders songs, and that's not easy. I like my audience. I have a sense it's growing all the time. We have a Monday morning show dedicated to the prosecution's of Trump and his allies, Susan Stubson, her husband, Tim Stubson, powerhouses from Wyoming. They are my guests Monday morning, 6 a.m. Colorado time. Please tell a friend, subscribe, share. We are growing. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.